But the way we teach it, it's a, it's a non-dual transformative practice, which is as far as we can manage, the same orientation in which it would be taught in a Buddhist meditation center, but without the Buddhism, okay? Or you could say with the essence of it. I mean, I'm not claiming that, but we're attempting to actually teach the essence of it without the story around it, which is very culturally conditioned, okay? But then, well, so people will start out, they'll come with whatever motivation they come with. Of course, you ask people why they're coming. And we used to ask people for decades, we ask people, what brings you here? And what are your goals for this eight-week program? And they'll say, because, you know, we're going to work your butts off. I mean, we say it's stressful to take the stress reduction program. <laughs> Seriously, it's the first thing we say to people. Like, you know, don't sign up for this unless you're really willing to. And it's a huge lifestyle change from the get-go. You have to carve out not only coming to the hospital once a week for a three-hour class with about 25 to 30 other people, but you have to carve out 45 minutes a day, six days a week at least, to practice what will feel an awful lot like nothing. But you still have to do it. As one of my patients once said, you know, like I'm just lying there doing the body scan, you know, I'm dr driving myself insane. I, I want to get up and vacuum the couch. <laughs> you know, she was very anxious and very compulsive. And I'd never heard that one before. Vacuum the couch. That's... Like, of all the things that might distract one in the meditation, the impulse to vacuum the couch is not one that I'd heard before. But what happens is, so they come with whatever motivation they come. I mean, suffering comes in a lot of different packages, and, and what is really being offered is the occasion to not uh, relieve the suffering, but to look deeply into the suffering and and understand its nature and then what happens will happen and what happens is a lot like liberation freedom to a certain extent and it doesn't necessarily mean your your pain is going to go away we see a lot of people with chronic pain that you know they've been through four neurosurgeons but you can learn how to be with that pain in a way and that is profoundly transformative, like a rotation in consciousness. And it's not something you have to meditate 40 years to get. It's like right here, right now, if you are willing to drop your attachments, your clinging to your story about how, uh, how they did this to me and you know why this ruined my whole life and all of that stuff, which all may be true to a degree, not skillful for freedom or for moving on in your life and for healing and so forth. So that's the spirit in which this is being offered. But um, ultimately, we can't control that. The Dharma basically takes care of itself, and the best we can do is try to live the Dharma as we understand it. Thank you for that question. Great question. I see a hand over there. Yeah. Do you want to come up and talk in the microphone? I haven't had one taker yet. Yeah, but we may not be able to hear your simple question. Why don't you come up? And I want you to just see how beautiful everybody looks, too. That's all right. Just come up. You can even sit down on the chair. 
Because then it'll be at the right height. So. Now you're making, okay. I just wanted to know what resources you might have available in, in terms of tapes or the things that you offer, let's say, at the at the, uh, clinic. At the clinic. What you might oh, have. Oh, sorry. You have so to not, okay. I w I'm asking him what tapes and what resources he might have available in terms of books, tapes, th those kind of things that uh, maybe you might okay. can expound upon. I can. I don't think there's anything here. Uh, is that right? Okay. But uh, you can get that kind of stuff by uh, going to the website www.mindfulnesstapes.com. <laughs> and uh, there you can get a hold of not just tapes, but they come in either the form of tapes or CDs that are guided meditation programs that probably, how many of you have used them or at least bought them, you know, so probably a lot of people buy them and they never use them, but um, yeah, but they are meant to actually help you develop a meditation practice from zero, okay? So they're guided meditations of various lengths and uh, grounded in uh, exactly the practice that we've been uh, mm, talking about and also practicing here this evening. And their books are at least listed there. You can't buy the books off that website, but you can go, you know, buy the books anywhere. At the hospital? Yeah, the, the first set, there are two series, series one and series two. Series one is used at the hospital. You know, I'm actually uh, no longer uh, at the clinic. Uh, I, I retired from the medical school a couple of years ago, but I'm still working with all of my colleagues. I just don't get paid for it. <laughs> but uh, but uh, my patients used the series one program there, and the second program goes with my second book, which is called Wherever You Go, There You Are. So, uh, but if you're asking me, are they sort of low-level, rinky-dink, uh, as opposed to heavy-duty, serious? <laughs> I would say that they are, certainly the intention was not to craft something that would be low-level and rinky-dink. What, what actually, you know, but you'll have to make that judgment for yourself. Another question? Yes. Yes, I know that, well, I didn't actually know that Jack Kornfield says that, but, uh, but I know he tells his story a lot, and, uh, and, and I understand that. And the one time I did tell that story, it was at Spirit Rock. It was at Jack Kornfield's Meditation Center, where I got asked that question, but it was a kind of a two-day workshop that I was doing with them, and... And I've been asked that question millions of times, and I never answer it. And that time I decided, I'm going to just go for it and tell them my story. And indeed, uh, the response was quite amazing to me. Because I've always been reluctant to tell my story. This is my sort of sneaky way of not answering the question. 
I've always been reluctant to tell my story because it's just a story, and it's just my story, and you know, and it can also sound like I'm trying to inflate myself. And I've noticed, like, whenever I tell any story, maybe you've noticed the same thing, especially when you're presenting yourself, that depending on who you're talking to, you can slant it this way or slant it that way and exaggerate a little bit here and not speak a little bit about those things that were a little bit like, you know, you don't want to speak about. And it can just sound so marvelous. It's like, I can't believe this person's life. It's really fantastic. And it's all full of shit. Uh, so... Uh, yeah. Yeah. And getting off the plane and Right. You remember the story of his going to Saks Fifth Avenue with his sister or something like that? In his monk's robes, shaved head and everything else. But you were a little bit about being, uh, the, uh, what you were doing with Yeah. You like that? I'm not wiggling here on the end of the line. I'll try to say something, just to honor where your question is coming from. Because I know that in some way it can be useful, and in other ways maybe not, or useful to some people and not to other people. So <laughs> the trouble is, is, you know, it's like what level to pitch it and how long, you know, it's like how, how, how much time do you have? You know? So, I mean, I'll tell one story. I don't even know if it's true, but I'll just sort of tell. <laughs> it's true to a degree, you know. I was born in New York City in 1944, if you want to know my age, and you know how to do math. Um, and I was born into a family where my father uh, was a, a, a professor in four different departments at PNS at Columbia Medical Center up on 168th Street, uh, and a world-renowned uh, immunologist. And my mother uh, was a painter that was not at all renowned, who was not at all renowned. No one, she never had an exhibit. She never showed her work, but she was unbelievably prolific. I mean, she just painted all the time. She was, like, amazing. She really had Monet's eyes and just loved light and shadow. And, and she does to this day. She's turning 90 this year, and she's still at it. And, and, uh, and I get tremendous joy from her joy. That's her meditation practice. It's painting. And it's kept her sane through a lot of real difficulty. My father, whose mind was like a samurai, I mean, like, you know, just, you don't run into minds like this. He was sharp and also terrifying. He was, he was scary, uh, not just because he was so smart, but he was also mean. <laughs> you still want to hear more? <laughs> what I mean by that is that he had a reputation for being a real son of a bitch. Uh, and, and so every, you know, so people thought twice about doing postdoc in his lab 
in Dr. Cabot's lab because uh, they even had a verb for it. It was called being cabotized. You know, and when he died, his, his students came back from all over the world, including one who won the Nobel Prize. Um, and, and they talked about how being cabotized was the most important thing that ever happened in their scientific career, but it was also terrifying and scary. And um, the trouble was I was cabotized too, along with my two brothers. And there he, he was able to be a lot more abusive in a way than, than even in his lab, but he was pretty abusive in the lab. Uh, so I grew up in this household with like uh, these two cultures at the time of C.P. Snow. There's art and science. And I got to see the underbelly of both and also the beauty of both. And I realized probably only three or four years ago that in some way the meditation if we're talking like in sort of psychodynamic terms, meditation was for me a link between the art and the science or my mother and my father uh, and these different ways of knowing reality. And it's just like my particular uniqueness that I happen to be born into that family. And, and I'm not criticizing my father. I mean, he, 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 he was abusive, but, but he, he, uh, I came to forgive him for that. Uh, he used to beat the living daylights out of me, and I never, ever backed down. One iota. So it created, as you might imagine, a huge amount of havoc in the, in the household. Um, but that was his way of, like, you know, he, he just did not know how to find a way to relate because of all sorts of karmic causes and conditions and stuff like that. And I came to actually see what he couldn't see and forgive him around that. And, and, and just one more thing. I don't know why I'm telling you about my parents, but I guess that tells a lot about me. Um, he wound up, uh, this guy who was like samurai of the mind wound up losing his mind. He got Alzheimer's. And I took care of him for seven or eight years. Not like lived with him, but it was my, it felt to me to take care of him for seven or eight years. And, and I got to watch a human mind that I love, that I really care about, develop holes like Swiss cheese, up close and personal, and what was lost. And it taught me a lot, and it also broke my heart. And, and all of that's just part of the unfolding of my life. Uh, because I had the science and the art, the science took me to MIT because I wanted to actually study the mind. And I figured, well, in order to really study the mind scientifically and be responsible about it before going into neuroscience, I should learn you know, physics and chemistry. So I majored in physical chemistry in college. And then when I went to MIT, I, I went there not in neuroscience, but in molecular biology. Because I was figuring, like, well, I just have to work up the ladder. You know, you start with bacteria, and then you eventually wind up with the human mind. But I got impatient after a while because, you know, I felt like at this rate I'm never going to get to human mind. And, and it was very difficult, actually, being at MIT in many ways because um, science is... I mean, it's just insanely beautiful, but also the way it's done, there's a lot of ego, there's a lot of competition, there's a huge amount of pressure. Uh, 
people that are just like driving themselves constantly to do the next experiment and you know competing with other labs that are doing the next experiment and and I didn't want to do science that way I wanted to do it in a way that was like just more balanced um, so I actually through I went to a, a a martial arts school in 1966. Uh, yeah, 1966. Uh, Matson's Karate Institute down in, on Cambridge Street in Boston. And, um, and because I felt like I just needed to sort of get out of MIT. So I went to this martial arts school and, uh, and there was this guy, a young Vietnam veteran named Tex, I'll never forget him, tattoos you know, the kind of military army marine tattoos that you had in the 60s before everybody got tattooed. And, uh, and, and he was doing these amazing warm-up exercises, which turned out to be hatha yoga. We were doing shoulder stands and plows and headstands and things like that. And that's how I got into hatha yoga. It's just like karate. And then uh, Philip Kaplow was invited to come to MIT, also in 1966, by Houston Smith, who was a professor, a famous professor of philosophy and religion, who you may know from the multi-part program that Bill Moyers did with Houston Smith on the religions of man. He wrote a book by that name. And Houston Smith invited this guy, Philip Kaplow, who had been a journalist at Nuremberg at the war trials. And then he had gone to Japan afterwards and became a you know, Zen student and then a Zen master. And, and somehow he, he wrote a book called The Three Pillars of Zen. And before the book came out, he came to MIT at the invitation of Houston Smith and he gave a talk. So I'm walking down the corridors. The Vietnam War was just heating up. And I'm walking down the corridors and my experiments aren't working. And I'm feeling kind of just completely depressed uh, with the state of the world and the state of my own life. And, and, I, and I see, you know, out of the corner of my eye, the corridors at MIT. Has anybody ever been at MIT here? You know, the corridors are like at the Pentagon. I don't know if you've been at the Pentagon, but they're just like interminable. They go on forever. So I'm walking down the corridor at MIT, and my eye just catches this little sign that says, The Three Pillars of Zen, talk by Philip Kaplow. Never heard of Zen. Somehow, and I have no idea why, I went to that talk. Do you know how many people in all of MIT went to that talk? Four <laughs> or five. <laughs> and Houston Smith's a very famous guy in his own right, you know, and he's a fantastic character. So I went to that talk, and he was talking about his experience being at the war crimes tribunal and hearing, you know, all of the testimony of the Holocaust basically, and then needing to sort of go to some place to just let it all just soak in and, and sort of settle. And also that he had all these terrible ulcers and stuff like that. He was, had been a student, journalism student at Columbia and was friends with, with uh, Ginsburg and uh, Kerouac and all of those people. He goes off to Japan and sits in a freezing cold monastery in or Kaido or something like that, you know, very rigid, start at 3 o'clock in the morning and just you know, no explanation, no teaching. I mean, you didn't know any Japanese anyway, but they don't teach you anything anyway. I mean, just sit. And then when you don't sit, you walk. And then, and then the, you have an interview with the teacher that lasts maybe two seconds. And, you know, the teacher rings the bell and you're out. And, you know, like... He noticed six months later his ulcers had cleared up. 
and I'm just listening. You know, maybe I was 20 years old at the time, or 21, was 22. Somehow his talk, whatever he said, took the top off my head. And then he came back and he started uh, offering meditation classes, you know, on the Saturday, day-long session or whatever. And I started sitting then, and I've been sitting ever since. And so the beat goes on, the story goes on, there are a million different twists and turns and everything else. I'll just say one more thing. You know, I'm trained as a molecular biologist, but I didn't want to do it anymore at a certain point. I, I kept asking myself, what is my job on the planet? What am I supposed to be doing? Of course, I was trained in this, and you know, I grew up in that, but what am I supposed to be doing? I don't want to be my father. I don't want to be my mother. You know, I mean, it's like, what am I supposed to be doing? That's a wonderful meditation. Just ask yourself, what, what is my job on the planet with a capital J? In fact, I wrote a chapter in Wherever You Go, There You Are that's called exactly that. What is my job on the planet? It's very unfortunate when you wind up not doing your job on the planet. You wind up doing somebody else's job on the planet. And it's not so obvious what one's job is. And then at different stages in life, one's job, one's calling might be somewhat different. And the way I would put, put it, used to put it, and still put it, is that means for me, what would I want to do so much that I'd pay to do it? It's a kind of reverse job. You pay to do it. You don't get paid to do it. You pay to do it. You want to do it so much. And you could say that when I started this stress reduction clinic for many years, I paid to do it. Uh, I paid in part by you know, how little money I got. And I paid also in part by being in the basement for 18 years. When Jack introduced me when I gave a talk at, you know, in California once, Jack gave the introduction. It was like, 800 people in the audience, and, and he said, John Kabat-Zinn has just come out of his cave. I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. But then he said, oh, he works in the basement there in the medical school, and, and it was. It was like, you know, no air, no light. I mean, my wife would never come and visit me in the hospital. She said, I can't stand to be here in here for 30 seconds, you know, and I was spending 10 hours a day. But I would have, I would pay to do it. I mean, so it really you know, was a, a labor of love. And, uh, and somehow, uh, being a molecular biologist with no credentials whatsoever to work with patients or anything like that, I wound up uh, creating this clinic at the hospital. And uh, with, with the, it, it all came to me, what I should do, what my job was on the planet for years of like doing this, doing that, figuring, you know, fiddling around, trying this, trying that, all around Dharma. I wanted my Dharma practice and my life to be coextensive and my work to be coextensive. And I felt at the time that I had that with my family, but I didn't have it with work. And, um, and then I was sitting uh, uh, in the Catskills, if any of you sit at IMS. I was sitting in a particular room on the second floor of the Catskills, and uh, you know, one afternoon on a two-week silent retreat, and in 15 seconds I just saw the potential for a clinic at the medical school where I was already working, uh, but how about a clinic would catch people falling through the cracks of the healthcare system and basically do what we do at IMS. You know, we do, do, do that practice, but we'd have to clothe it in a different way uh, and frame it in a different way and hold people in a different way, but same practice. And then it also was clear within that 20 seconds of that if that worked in that hospital, it could actually spread. It could be a model that would spread around the world. All of that has come to pass. 
And because I was trained at MIT, in fact, I think that's how I got to do it, was that, you know, I went and I talked to these hospital administrators. I was a postdoc in the cell biology and anatomy department, teaching gross anatomy to the medical students, which meant doing gross dissections, which for a yoga teacher is like to die for. And that's how I wound up at UMass was because I wanted to do gross dissection anatomy, you know. Uh, and that's another story. But so I think what happened was I started talking to various kinds of doctors and administrators in the hospital and chiefs of this and that. And they just projected onto me, well, he's got a PhD in molecular biology from MIT with a Nobel laureate. He must know what the fuck he's doing. So let's let him do it. You know, I mean, it's like truth is stranger than fiction. But somehow I managed to find a way. And I think that that is some possible. I don't think I'm unique in that regard. I don't think it's just like, you know, MIT or something like that. I think that we all, like, swim in a sea where we can navigate in terms of what has been given to us that would allow us to do the one work on the planet that if we don't do it, no one's going to do it. Which is not my formulation, by the way. It's Buckminster Fuller's, and I wrote about that in Wherever Go, There You Are in that chapter. So I'm going to stop there because, you know, as with stories, they can go on forever. And I don't know whether it will be helpful for you or not that I said those things, but uh, I think what's important is not the story of me or the story of you, for that matter, but stepping outside of the story of us and, in fact, looking at a much, much deeper level at who we actually are and what is actually, actually might be possible within the body and beyond the body and even in society if we were to claim and own the fullness of what it means to be human. And that, by the way, is my definition of spirituality. And that is what I consider one's true nature to be. And therefore, it's not possible that there be Buddhists and non-Buddhists. We're all you know, these miraculous beings were all basically Buddhas. And the challenge is, can we rise to the occasion? And before we could possibly rise to the occasion, we have to know the occasion is here and now. And the only way we can know that is by dropping in in a non-conceptual way. So in the last 30 seconds, and I won't hold you anymore because it's already 9 o'clock, but we started a half hour late. So, um, But in the last 30 seconds, I'd like to invite you to just drop everything. Put away your pencils and stuff like that. Sit in a posture that embodies dignity and drop in on the fullness of your being right here in this moment by resting in that dimension of your being that already hears, already feels, already breathes and knows, that dimension of your being that is in touch with the fullness of your being in this moment with no separation whatsoever from the entire rest of the universe that you are an intimate part of. 
And although we are all here for the briefest of moments, just waves rising up, lingering for a moment, and falling back into the sea of life, this time that's given to us by the clock, by the calendar, has an infinite number of moments, each one of which is only here and only now, and available to us if we are willing to make ourselves available, drop in to silence and come to our senses. Folks, I want to thank you for your presence, for your attention. Uh, I uh, love that you came in the snowstorm. I really do. And, and I, I want you to consider that maybe you came out of love. And maybe you will carry that love back, back home with you and into your life in maybe a slightly different way from simply having come, for simply having come. And one, one piece of homework, actually two pieces of homework, if you don't mind my assigning homework, but I do it in a very light-handed, hearted way, okay? One is, uh, a little bit of a story associated with it. I won't tell you the story, but somebody who really didn't want to be on retreat with me but then wound up staying but let me know that she thought it was just the most utter nonsense. Then she wound up actually teaching mindfulness-based stress reduction years later. She made me a kind of, I think they, I don't know what they call it, but it's kind of like a needlepoint gothic script, you know, with like a border and everything else. And, and it's in my favorite color, pink. And then, and then you know, all these like beautiful curlicues and stuff like that. And what it says in there is something that I actually said at the end of this professional training program to the 200 people that were in attendance. We run them all like, you know, intensive mindfulness retreats. And the phrase was, will your ass be on the cushion tomorrow? Mm -hmm.